Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the real Christmas story. The birth of Jesus. And that's pretty fitting because we're putting this out on Christmas Eve. And what better to talk about than the birth of Christ? So our topic is the real Christmas story. What do we find in the Bible about how Jesus was born? And first of all, let's go over a couple obvious things. Number one, Jesus was not born on December 25th. There's a lot more competent people than me who have studied when Jesus was actually born. But December 25th, that's, that's being placed on the winter solstice. And it's being placed there for ideological reasons. And if you want to learn all about that, there's quite a lot of Christians who, like, that's basically their sole focus in life is to destroy Christmas for everyone else. So, so go find one of those guys and ask them, and they'll give you an earful, more than you want to hear. Uh, but we're not going to be covering that aspect. More importantly, more importantly, uh, the birth of Christ. What is the Christ? That is the Messiah. And what is the Messiah? That's the anointed one. Anointed one. I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but I am told that a lot of people consider Christ as Jesus' last name. Like, I'm Christopher Fisher, and then there's Jesus Christ, and Christ is his last name. In fact, I asked my second and third graders in Sunday school, I said, you know, what, what does this Christ mean? And some of them did think that Christ was his last name. And then I had to explain to them that they didn't even really have last names at that time. And we went in through name morphology, like my last name is Fisher, and so my ancestors probably fished. That's, that's a pretty good guess at what my ancestors did in order for us to get this last name. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. Christ means anointed. And very interestingly, Jesus is not the only Christ in the Bible. For clarification real quick, Christ is the Greek term for the Jewish term Messiah. And there's plenty of Messiahs in the Bible. Messiah is not a divine name for Jesus. A Messiah doesn't mean divinity. Messiah doesn't even mean apocalyptic prophet or apocalyptic leader. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's just someone that God has anointed for a task. And most prominently, when people think of an Old Testament Messiah, Cyrus comes to mind. King Cyrus. And what did Cyrus do? He was God's anointed. And we read in Isaiah 45.1. Let's read that real quick here. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. And so Cyrus is a pagan king, but he's also a Messiah for the Jews. And what he does is he allows the Babylonian exiles, Israel, to return to the promised land. He is a specific person appointed by God for a specific task. That's what a Messiah is. That's what a Christ is. And what was Jesus' tasking? What did the Jews expect from a Messiah? The Jews were definitely looking for a Messiah, but they did not associate this with the Son of God. They did not associate this with divinity. Normal people could be Messiahs. And the Jewish Messiah that they were waiting for was a man who would 
who would spur a revolution against their Roman overlords, their Roman oppressors, and save Israel and bring Israel back to prominence. Jesus dies, raises again. Acts 1, what do the disciples ask him? The first thing that they ask him after he preaches to them for about 30 days, what are they still concerned about? They say, so when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Flashback to Luke. There's an angel and the angel's talking to Mary, explaining to her who Jesus is going to be. And the angel says this, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And so the angels prophesying that there's going to be a son called Jesus. And this Jesus is going to take over the throne of David and reign in Israel. Fast forward just a little bit. Mary is talking to Elizabeth now, and she's talking about this Jesus whom the angel said that she was having. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. What's she being saved from? How is God her savior? If you just keep reading, it talks about the things God has done. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So what's Mary's hope in? Her hope, this is how she's saved. She's not saved by a personal belief in Jesus for the remissions of sin and entrance to heaven. She's very much concerned with this Messiah figure who's going to liberate Israel from their oppressors, their enemies, the Roman Empire. And this is how God has helped his servant Israel. This is how God has put down the mighty, put down their thrones, and exalted the lowly. The lowly was Israel, the exalted was the Roman Empire. And just keep reading, keep reading. And Zechariah, he also gives a very similar prophecy. So Zechariah, he starts in verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So, so God is redeeming his people somehow. And this is Israel. He has raised up a horn of salvation. And what's this salvation doing? Just kind of, kind of look at his wording here. What kind of salvation is being described here? For us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hates us. This is salvation from their Roman oppressors. Both Mary and Zechariah are very concerned with Israel's well-being and, and the prophesied day of the Lord in which God would restore the kingdom to Israel and build Israel up as a real people group on earth. He'll raise them and lift them from power and put them at the center of world history. That's what the Old Testament prophecies are about. The day of the Lord, the Messiah, what's going to happen. And Mary and Zechariah are very interested in this, as well as Jesus' disciples as we have seen from Acts. Long story short, 
Messiah is a generic term for God's anointed. There's plenty of anointeds throughout the Bible. King David, for one. Various high priests were the anointed ones. King Cyrus, a pagan king who wasn't even a Christian or a Jew. And these people are God's anointed. They're, they're messiahs. They're Christ's. So when we hear the word Christ or Messiah, we have to understand the contextual use of that word. The anointed is a position, and in the Jewish mindset, this was a king, a ruler of Israel, who would rise up and bring Israel out of the thumb of the Romans. One could just imagine how the Romans felt about this kind of mythology that was in Judaism, that they would have a Messiah that would lead them out of the oppressive hand of the Romans, and you had a very strong power base that had their power was predicated on Roman rule. And so we come across the character of Herod, and Herod is living in the time of Jesus, and he receives reports that this Messiah figure is being born. And what's his first reaction? He wants to kill that Messiah. He wants to kill that threat to his power. And so much so that he just kills a ton of kids. He just kills everyone under the age of two. But we might be getting ahead of ourselves here. So there's four Gospels, and the Gospels are various stories of Jesus' life, and you got what's known as Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And very much they have a lot of overlap in the stories and the way those stories are told, and that's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. John is a little bit more sporadic. It's a little bit uh, more philosophical in how it's written and how it presents Jesus, And it has a lot of stories that don't occur in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And only two of these four Gospels actually have uh, infancy narratives about Jesus, what Jesus did growing up or being born or just being a kid. Both Mark and John just lack any information about Jesus' childhood. They skip that. One might think that uh, being in the Synoptic Gospels and both having stories about Jesus' childhood, there would be some sort of overlap in those stories. But we don't actually find that. In Luke, we start out with Joseph and Mary, and they're living in Galilee. And then there's a decree from Caesar Augustus. And the entire world needs to be registered. And Joseph is from the lineage of David, so he's supposed to go back to a town called Bethlehem. So they're living in Nazareth, which is in Galilee, and they have to travel to Bethlehem to be registered for the census. The birth is described, it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there is no room for them in the inn. And the word here for inn is not like a hotel. They're not looking for hotels. Everything's not booked out because there's a big concert in town. Everyone's coming to get registered. And so all the motels and the hotels are booked up. That's not, that's not what's happening here. Joseph has family in Bethlehem. And they have a room called a guest room. And that's the same word for inn. And since this family has all their relatives coming back to Bethlehem, it's just filled up. And so there's a different room. It's a different part of the house. It's where they keep the animals. And this is where, you know, they they slept with their animals for warmth and because they're poor. And this is a poor area. And so they have to have Jesus in the area where there's the animals. And then they lay him in the manger. This is not a barn. These are not like rich people who have big red wooden barns for Jesus to be born in. And this is not 
they, they weren't looking for a hotel to stay at. It's not what's happening here. But anyways, in this account, there's some shepherds. And the shepherds are in the fields. And angels appear to them. And the angels tell these shepherds to come and see Jesus. And what do they see when they get there? A bunch of wise men with gifts? No, not in this story. In this story, it's only the shepherds. Only the shepherds. And then what happens after eight days? Uh, Jesus is circumcised. And then it cuts into Jesus being presented at the temple. Well, that's kind of anticlimactic. Weren't you expecting, like, uh, I don't know, Herod to come out and try to kill all the kids and stuff like that and, and fleeing to Egypt? You don't find that not in Luke. In Luke, it's traveling to Bethlehem from Nazareth, having the baby, Jesus, having shepherds visit, and then temple dedication. In Matthew, something different happens. In Matthew, they're in Bethlehem already, and it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And so in this story, we find Joseph and Mary already in Bethlehem. They've had Jesus. Wise men come to Herod, and they're looking for this Messiah, this Christ. And Herod's very concerned because this is a threat to his power. The wise men are Jews. They're not Christians. They don't understand the Bible. And so they have to talk to Hebrew scribes, people who understand the Bible, to try to figure out where exactly this child is. And apparently they've been following this star for some time. They go to Bethlehem and they find Mary with her child. It's not a baby. He is a child at this time. And Herod has wind of where they're going. And Herod wants them to bring the child to him, but they refuse to do so. The wise men are warned in a dream not to hand over the child Jesus to Herod because Herod's going to kill him. And notice how this is open theistic. God is telling people what to do to avoid events from happening. And, you know, that's the way the Bible's written. But anyways, these wise men are warned in a dream not to listen to Herod, and then they depart. Herod figures out he's tricked, and so then he gets a bunch of soldiers to go to Bethlehem and just kill all the kids two years of age and under. He's, he's playing it safe. Jesus is probably maybe between a year and two years old at this time. And so Herod's just going to blanket kill all these kids just to be safe, to kill this potential threat to his crown. And we see the wording here. It says, He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So the wise men know that Jesus is between maybe one or two years old, or maybe even younger, but he's a small kid. He's a child. This is not a birth story. The wise men are not showing up at the manger with a bunch of gifts. This is not uh, the life of Brian, Monty Python sketch. This is a different account than what you see at a lot of mangers, nativity scenes in which all the shepherds are gathering around with the magi, the kings also there. It's, it's just not how it is. And how many magis were there? How many kings were there? There's, you know, in popular tradition, there's three because there's three different gifts. But the text doesn't actually tell us how many wise men there were. It just gives us the number of different types of gifts. Maybe there's like 20 wise men. Maybe there's only five wise men. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. One, one of my second, third graders, they said, well, there, there might have been 5,000. Well, 
Probably not, but uh, they got the idea. When people are gathering around the Christmas tree, what story do you think that people read? Do they read the Matthew story or they do they read the Luke story? It tends to be, in my experience, that people read the Matthew story because it's it's more interesting and there's a lot of action going on and it's, it's very exciting, but it's not about Jesus' birth. So a lot of people get around the Christmas tree to celebrate Jesus' birth and then read a story about his childhood. All right, that works. These divergent accounts are not unnoticed by critical scholarship. And I'm going to play some audio from some of Bart Ehrman's lectures. And Bart Ehrman, he's anti-Christian. He writes books against Christianity. He's very well-versed in biblical scholarship and biblical Christianity. He used to be a heavy Calvinist before he converted to atheism because of the problem of evil. Because in Calvinism, God is evil. That's why he converted to be an atheist, and now he spends his time writing books against Christianity. And he's very hostile to Christianity. But he raises a lot of good points and good objections. I suggest everyone pick up his book, Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium. Very good book. You could take some things with a grain of salt because he is anti-Christian and sometimes he doesn't... Basically, he's sometimes less gracious than he should be and doesn't consider possibilities that seem fairly obvious on face value. Uh, once in a while, that happens. But overall, his writing's pretty solid and he brings up a lot of good points. But let's play from his audio lectures on the birth of Christ. In the accounts of Jesus' birth, there are some basic similarities. In both Matthew and Luke, Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. But again, there are also numerous differences between the accounts. In this case, there are probably more differences than similarities, uh, although again, a number of the differences are not actually discrepancies. Uh, sometimes as an exercise for my students uh, in my undergraduate classes, I have them make, uh, have them compare these two accounts. I have them read the Gospel of Matthew, list everything that happens in Matthew, and then read the account in uh, Luke and list everything that happens in Luke. What is remarkable is that the lists are almost completely different from one another, so that the uh, Christmas story that we hear uh, every December, in fact, is a conflation of the two accounts, so that the stories of one and the stories of the other are put together so that we have one big account, whereas the Gospels themselves provide uh, two different sets of stories. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Ehrman's being fair to Christianity, saying that if you, if you just look at these two accounts and put them side by side, there's very little overlap between these two. And so Christians are to merge these stories. They have to do that. They have to fit them in together. And, you know, like taking two sides of a deck of cards and, and shuffling them together to make them work. And that's what you have to do. And, you know, it's that's not anti-biblical or anything like that. It's just a fact of the text. If both these stories are true, uh, they have to be reconciled against one another. I'm going to fast forward the Ehrman lecture just a little bit. He just covers some of the differences, and we covered a lot of the differences already in what we've gone over. And so, you know, they're just duplicating work. So let's listen to him now a little further in the audio. But probably the ultimate point is that they aren't best read as objective accounts of actual history in any event. These stories are both trying to make a point. 
both want to emphasize that even though Jesus came from Nazareth, he really was born in Bethlehem. But why would they want to emphasize that? No doubt because the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, said that the future ruler of Israel would come from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Matthew and Luke want to emphasize that Jesus did come from there. Both want to emphasize that Jesus was an extraordinary person from the beginning. What evidence is there for that? According to both authors, his mother, in fact, was a virgin. These stories, in other words, are trying to convey ideas about Jesus. But when looked at as historical sources for what really happened, they appear in places to be inaccurate. My overarching point is that the Gospels contain narratives that appear to have been changed, modified over time in order to stress theological insights into who the authors believe Jesus was. Ehrman's point in this lecture is just what he said, that uh, there are some theological agendas within the Gospels. And yeah, we, we can admit that as Christians that there are theological agendas. And his first example is better than the one that I've been using, but we're talking about the birth of Christ here. His first example was Jesus's trial after Jesus was imprisoned. Basically, the, the discrepancies between the various Gospels on that instance. But in the Gospels, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And this is very important because this is a theologically key city. And some atheists... This is what they point to as proof positive that Jesus actually existed. Because Jesus was from Nazareth. This is a well-known fact within the Gospels, within Jesus' critics. And there has to be stories, mechanisms in order to get Jesus born in Bethlehem. So if Jesus was just like made up, the story would start with him in Bethlehem and there'd be no Nazareth. There'd be no reason to have Nazareth in the story. Two different accounts have two different ways of getting Jesus born in Bethlehem and then growing up in Nazareth. And this is a very good piece of evidence that Jesus was an actual historical figure, a person who actually existed, and there are historical details about him that we know as fact. All right, now we're going to take a shot at harmonizing Matthew and Luke. So Joseph and Mary, they start off in Nazareth, there's a decree that comes out from Caesar Augustus, and Joseph has to register in Bethlehem. He goes there. They have the baby. The shepherds come to the birth scene. Joseph and Mary then, after 40 days, take Jesus to present him at the temple in Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary then decide to live in Bethlehem for quite some time, maybe a year or so, while the wise men are traveling to the location. The wise men get there, they go meet Jesus, bring him gifts, they are warned about Herod, Joseph is warned about Herod, and then Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, only to return after Herod's death, and then they ultimately settle in Nazareth. Jesus then grows up in Nazareth and is known as Jesus of Nazareth, and people wonder you know, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, and here's Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew has an interesting verse in Matthew 2.23, and it reads this, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. 
he shall be called a Nazarene. Hmm. Where's that in the Bible? Why don't Calvinists turn here and say, look at this fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. This prophecy is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Anywhere. You're not going to find, you know, people are confused when they come to this verse and they're like, oh, okay. There's a fulfilled prophecy here uh, by one of the prophets. And then there's no reference. So this is just more evidence of, you know, this is an idea being communicated. And the idea is this, is that uh, to be a Nazarene, uh, you're impoverished and people look down on you and you're despised. And this is just a general idea that the Messiah would be despised, would be coming up from the ranks of the underclass. And that's a general idea. So it's kind of a summary of what previous prophets have said, even though it's not a specific prophecy. And this is how Matthew uses fulfillment a lot of times, that there's these, uh, these, these parallel concepts that reoccur, and there's these ideas that uh, show themselves in the story of Jesus that were previously communicated. They, they're not necessarily based on actual prophecies. It's not like prophecy fulfillment like one would think of when they're watching a movie where a prophet says, this will happen, and then it... And then it does happen, and it's like, wow, this guy knew the future. It's not what type of prophecy this is. It's not what type of fulfillment this is. And it almost kind of reads like people are just intentionally trying to make these fulfillments come to pass. And it says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, that he shall be called Nazarene. So they move there, that an Old Testament idea would be fulfilled. And you see this time and time again in the Bible. Let's just flip to Luke 22 pretty quick. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For this I say to you, that this which was written must be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For all things concerning me have an end. Okay, so this... This prophecy, this idea is being fulfilled through intentional acts. Like, we are going to just manufacture the situation to fulfill this idea. It's not like what we think of as prophecy, where people just go out of their way to make prophecy being fulfilled. That doesn't count for modern prophecy. But the Jewish idea of prophecy wasn't this modern idea, or it's just this mystical interpretation and foreseeing of the future. And prophecy is admittably manufactured by the actors in these stories. We got a few minutes left in this podcast, so let's just talk about a couple more misconceptions. We've already gone over Jesus's birthday was not December 25th. We've already gone over what Christ and the Messiah means. We went over the narrative story itself, what happened in each of the gospels and harmonizing those accounts. Now let's touch really quickly on just AD and BC. Everyone knows that BC stands for before Christ. But often people say that AD stands for after death. And I had in public school, there's this teacher and he stood up in front of the class and he was talking. This is probably before the internet. So, you know, you couldn't just, just Google things. But he stood up there and he's just wondering. He's like, I don't get it. I don't get it. BC is before Christ. AD is after death. Did 
Jesus do this all in one year? And this guy was supposed to be a, a public school teacher teaching a class. It's like, and I as a student knew that there was a Latin term. AD stands for Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Like if we read documents from way back whenever, like the Constitution, it'll say the year of our Lord. That's Anno Domini. That's what AD means. So don't say it means after death and don't perpetuate that. That's just not accurate. That's just a personal pet peeve of mine. I don't know. And on the note, there's no year zero. It jumps from 1 BC to 1 AD. And there's no like year zero. And Jesus wasn't born in year zero or year one anyways. By my calculations, I mean, I did a lot of research on when Jesus was actually born. And I'm looking at my little timeline that I built. And I put it at 3 BC. Though all my research that I pumped into this, I didn't write it down. And what happens when you don't write something down, you forget it. So that's actually why I started blogging in the first place. So I didn't have to remember everything. And I'd have a quick place and a quick way to access information that I had researched. The current calendar is based on, you know, ancient estimations of when Jesus was born. Probably inaccurate. So 3 BC is probably a more realistic date for the birth of Christ. I guess it's kind of an anticlimactic ending to our podcast. But uh, as always, thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. All the shall see.